little banjo action. I like that. Take me. I grew up in West Virginia. I feel like I was back home. Thank you. Thank you, Noah. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord once more and uh, ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Father, You are the maker of the heavens and the earth. Everything that exists came into form through the power of Your Word and is sustained even at this moment. Our hearts beating, the birds flying, our, just our existence is sustained by You. Father, we are in need of your mercy every moment, and we are grateful that you are providing it even now. And we pray, Father, that as you are sustaining our, our physical lives, that, that through your Spirit, that you might, you might renew our hearts and our minds, that we might be a people who, who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we pray that as we come before your Word, that you would, you would honor your Word, that it would... As Isaiah says, that it would not return void. That you would accomplish the purpose that you have uh, for us this morning. Creating us clean hearts and pure hearts that might be free to worship you and to love one another. God, give us grace. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Kiev's Monastery of the Caves is a historic Orthodox monastery built in around the 11th century in the Ukraine. And this monastery is famous for its, its beautiful architecture and its elaborate underground cave systems. Uh, but a number of years ago, it uh, became famous for something else. There was a monk who lived in this monastery, and he desired to show his, his devotion to, to the Lord. So, what he did is he went down into one of the, the rooms in one of the underground caves and he walled himself up into the chamber. He covered the entire opening except for a small section which he uh, used to pass necessities back and forth to, to some of the other monks. This deeply devoted man spent the rest of his days in isolation, reading and praying. His devotion to God was, was never interrupted except during the brief visits from his brothers who, who would bring food to his room and later return to carry away other things uh, that the monk had. This man lived in, uh, in, title, in, in total isolation before the, the Lord until the day of his death, doing nothing but reading and praying and, and waiting for the Lord's return. Now, for some, this may be viewed as, as kind of the height of, of spirituality. There's uninterrupted meditation and devotion to God. But for most of us, hopefully we can see that, that this man's example wasn't, it wasn't a good one. I mean, in this, it, what we see, it's not, it's not a picture of hyper-spirituality, but rather it's, it's well-intended selfishness. I mean, it's, it's impossible to love others and to serve others when you're walled up in this, this room all by yourself. He laid down his life, but in the end, ultimately, he laid it down only for his own benefit. Now, before we too quickly start uh, criticizing him, I think it would be good for us to pause and see if we can find ourselves in the example of our friend the monk. I think if we're honest, most churches, particularly those here in the West, are, are filled with individuals who every Sunday come seeking someone to serve them. We come hoping to have some personal experience with God that will renew our devotion to Him. We come expecting to hear music that we like and to be around people that we like and to be, to be served by the kind of programs that we like. And if we don't find those things, we can very easily be persuaded to just go down the road and find another church that maybe will cater to some of our needs. Now, don't get me wrong. There is absolutely nothing wrong with desiring to be edified in your personal relationship with Christ. That, that should happen. And it's, it's a great thing if you can find a place where there's comfortable seats and music that you like. Those are, all, those are all fine and good. But I think we want to be careful 
and not underestimate how each one of us, in varying degrees, has been influenced by the individualistic, self-centered consumerism in our days, and how that drives the way that we think about what church is and what church should, should be about. So whether we're in a crowded room of, of 10,000 people, or whether we're all by ourselves walled up alone in a chamber underground, We must always guard our hearts from a self-centered individualism. Instead, we should seek to be a church that that lives and and loves as Christ did. We're to be a people who, through the power of the Spirit, pursue the self-sacrificing, servant-minded, others-centered call of Christ. But if we wall ourselves up in our own little self-consumed spiritual dungeons... We won't love others. We won't serve others. And in the end, we'll have a church that lies to the world about who Jesus really is. So, with that in mind, what what should a church look like? What should a community of people who maybe have the same intent as that monk, who, who desire to have devotion to the Lord, what should a church that is gospel produced And gospel-empowered, what should that kind of church look like? What should that kind of Christ community be and do? If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And as we turn here, our hope is that we will will see in this this early church an example of what a, a church is supposed to look like that is produced by the gospel and sustained by the gospel. Acts chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 42 and then we'll back up and get some, some context. 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And the believers were together and they, they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The book of Acts is the second in a two-part work written by the good Dr. Luke. So the Gospel of Luke um, shows Jesus as as the King of Kings, the one who came and, and died for sins and then in power was raised from the dead and then promised before he ascended that, that he would send his spirit to, uh, to be with his, his followers and empower them. The book of Acts, the second part of of Luke's um, presentation of of the works of Christ, picks up the story with with Jesus ascending into heaven and then him filling his disciples with the Holy Spirit so that they can take the gospel to the ends of the earth and proclaim that, that Jesus did come and he died for sinners and that he rose from the dead and that now for anyone, anywhere, who will turn from their sins and trust in him, they can have their sins forgiven and be reconciled with their God. That's what the book of Acts is just, it chronicles that that story of of the gospel going literally to the ends of the earth and all kinds of people getting saved. Well, the content, our passage this morning starts early in that story. And to get us just a little context, look back at at Acts 2.1, where here we find the disciples in Jerusalem during the day of, of Pentecost. Now, this feast of Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. Now, the reason that that's significant is because that means that the crowd that is gathered here in this scene is the very same crowd that 50 days earlier were standing before Pilate and before Jesus, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. So that's the same crowd that's there, and the disciples are, are among them. 
And then we see in the beginning of Acts 2 that that the Holy Spirit comes from heaven and fills them. And they begin to to proclaim the mighty works of God in all kinds of of different languages. And the crowd who's there is like, what's going on with these guys? They've been up, you know, on the sauce this morning. They've been drinking. And Peter gets up and says, no, that's not what this is about. And, And in verse 14, he begins to explain to them that what they're seeing is, is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy given by the prophet Joel. And in verse 22, you can follow along there, he says this. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, meaning the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Peter looks at this crowd and he says, y'all killed Jesus. He came showing himself to be the messenger of of heaven and you killed him. But God, God raised him. God raised him from the dead. Peter goes on and continues to teach about this. And then in verse 37, the crowd responds. Verse 37, they say, "When when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, which is really amazing, because if you remember when they were crying for Jesus' blood, and Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of blood, do you remember what they said? They said, let it be on us and on our children. And now... This message of mercy is for them and for their children. And for all who are far off, verse 39, for all whom the Lord our God will call, verse 40, with many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that That's how the first church was born. And I share all this with you because I I want us to see that the church that we're going to be learning from this morning, this is not just some some kind of, of spiritual social club or some kind of bunch of religious people who just get together for muffins and mochas. That's not what the church is supposed to be about. But rather, these are a bunch of former Christ crucifiers who are now born again and by the power of the Spirit, become a bunch of Christ worshipers. This is not just some some club, but rather, they are a gospel-produced, Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered assembly of people whom the Lord has called and collected for Himself. So what was this church like? What should a healthy, gospel-produced, gospel-centered church look like? On the rest of our time together this morning, what I want us to do is look at four principles that we find in the section that I read a a moment ago about this church and and see what we can learn from them about what it means to be a church that is saved by grace and lived by grace before a world that needs that grace. So the four things we'll be seeing this morning is that that we ought be a, a learning church, a worshiping church, a loving church, and an evangelizing church. Let's look first at a learning church. A learning church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These people had experienced the power of God's word when the Spirit used it to give them life. They'd been born again, and now their, their spiritual appetite could only be satisfied by learning more about this Jesus. The word, therefore, devote, it, mean, it, it paints a picture of them continually consuming this life-giving teaching of the apostles. 
So it's not, it's not just this you know, one-time kind of Bible-hearing thing, but rather it's an ongoing listening and learning and growing in God's Word. It's what marked them. They were known as a people of, of God's Word. I have a friend named John who, who used to be a, a cocaine dealer. And uh, he became a Christian just a handful of, of years ago uh, by listening to a John Piper sermon on, on John chapter 3 about what it means to be, to be born, in, born again. And it's, it's been amazing to watch his life be transformed, particularly when it comes to his devotion to God's Word. Since John became a Christian two and a half years ago, he has, he has read the Bible nearly five times. At one point, he had, he had read through the Bible four times in 19 months. Now, why would a former drug dealer all of a sudden have some, this, this kind of affinity and devotion to a book like the Bible? Well, because he knows that The Bible is God's word, and that it's true, and that the world all around him has been lying to him for years, just like it's been lying to us, and that he knows that he needs to come and to hear the words of truth from his Savior. He loves God's word. That's what marked this church here in Acts 2. This church isn't just a bunch of free-thinking individuals who've got life all figured out. No, they are a group who are bound together by the reality that apart from hearing from God, they're hopeless. They need to hear from Him. They lived in their own wisdom long enough to know that all it would lead them to do is to crucify the Lord of glory. They had been, been humbled. Jesus had showed them mercy, and now they love to draw near to him through his words to learn about Christ and to learn about what Christ wanted from them. And this is exactly what Jesus meant when he told the apostles. You remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about Matthew 28, and, and Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, Go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you. This church here in in Acts 2 is learning the commands of Christ. They're they're learning what it means to to love one another and to forgive one another and what it means to, to take up their cross daily and to follow after Jesus. They're learning the significance of His miracles and the sufferings on, on the cross and His resurrection of the dead and the reality The reality that at any moment Jesus could return and take those who are His to be with Him in those mansions of glory that He promised that even now He's preparing for us. Those are the kinds of things that they're they're learning about and the kinds of things that we learn about as we come to God's Word and we be a people of, of the Scriptures. This church was a learning church. And we can learn a lot from their example. They show us that we ought to have a humble posture before God's Word. They teach us that God's people are a, a humble people who come and say, Lord, we, we need You. So what that means is that when we gather as a church, God's Word, God's Word must be central. Not that we worship the Bible. Not, not at all. Because Jesus said that you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. But no, they speak of Me, He said. So so we come to the Scriptures realizing that as we preach God's Word and we pray God's Word and we sing God's Word and and we mirror God's Word or picture it through through the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, what we're doing is we're seeking Christ. We're seeking Him. That's what a church is supposed to be about. It's to be a people who, through God's Word, draw near to the Lord. We must be a learning church who's devoted to God's Word and loves God's Word. Now, before we move on from this point, I want to address a question that some of you may be wrestling with. I know I wrestled with it as I was trying to preach this to myself this week and thinking about it. What happens when, when a church or a Christian doesn't love God's Word? 
doesn't have that desire, doesn't have that longing to to wake up and to get into the Word or throughout the day to be memorizing Scripture, to have it on our hearts, what, what should a... What should a Christian or a church do when that happens? And I, I think if we're honest, all of us have been there. I've been there. I'm the preacher guy up front, okay? We, we, none of us are immune to this. So, so what, what should we do? Well, um, the, the answer is not a, it's not a tricky one. It's not a tricky one, it's a, but it's one that must be applied in faith. When we don't desire God's word... We must listen to and read God's word. When we, when we don't desire God's word, the answer is to listen to and, and read God's word. Let, let me explain the little illustration. So when we become physically hungry, our bellies begin to growl. Sometimes we begin to shake a little bit. I get grumpy, okay? I get mean. So we, we begin to feel that. Um, <laughs> But, but when we eat, the hunger is satisfied, and the cravings go away, and our body gets what it needs, and we are fulfilled. Spiritual hunger, it works almost exactly the opposite. When we consume spiritual food through prayer and through God's word, what happens is that an appetite is stirred up rather than settled down. So when we're calloused and dry... The best thing that we can do is to come to the Scriptures and to read the Scriptures. The best idea is not to just sit back on the couch and and just kind of, you know, surf the Internet or watch TV or do whatever else you do to buy time and just wait until you start feeling like coming to God's Word. That's not the answer. The answer, rather, is in faith to come to the Scriptures and go to passages like Psalm 119 and, and read what David talks about, how he loves the law of the, the Lord. And, and as you read it, pray and say, God, give me that kind of heart. Help me to love your word. Help it to be like honey on my lips. God, let me, let me love it. Go to passages like Isaiah 55, like the one we prayed uh, just a moment ago. Lord, you say that your word will not return void. We'll, we'll put it all over this heart that's grown dry and, and warm, my, warm my heart. Go to the Gospels and read about Christ and, and see Him and say, Lord, help me, help me afresh to love You and to be amazed by You. And not necessarily in an instant, which the devil trains us in this world to get immediate gratification. Right now, if you want it, you can have it right now. God doesn't work like that. It's a continual act of faith in coming to Him and praying and pleading and reading and asking God to change our heart that He he renews our heart for his, his word. So a healthy church must be a learning church. One that loves and listens to God's word. But we can't just receive God's word to inform us, but rather we receive it with the hope that it will transform us. The more that we learn of God, the more that we ought have love for God. So this church was... A learning church, but it was also, number two, a worshiping church. A worshiping church. This church had encountered the living God through his living word, and it had, it had transformed them. Now, you've got to understand that the people in, in our text this morning had, had been a religious people. They, they had been faithful Jews who regularly went to the temple for prayers and sacrifices. But now they, they do it a bit differently. Notice there in verse 46, we see that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So these, these Jewish believers continue many of their, their religious routines, but now, can you imagine, now they come with new eyes. They, they come to all this and, and they see it, they see it differently. For the first time, they see all of the symbolism in, in the temple and, and the practices that were going on there. They hear the law and the the prophets and the psalms and they're like, whoa, that's talking about Jesus. How did I never see that before? They're they're there when sacrifices are being offered and they see the blood that was spilt on the ground for many years that that they had been a part of those, but now they realize that that the final sacrifice has happened and that that Christ's blood was shed and and I don't need to, to do that anymore. Can you imagine what that was like for them? as they continue to go and to see this, but now they saw it with new eyes. 
I remember right after I came to know the Lord, I, uh, I went to a I went to a, a church service. It was it was pretty dead. It was kind of liturgical. There's nothing wrong with liturgical. There is something wrong with dead. But it was it was it was kind of a dead liturgical church. And and I just I went there, but it was like it was like everything was in HD for me. I just felt like I was a kid at Christmas sitting in the back, being like, "Oh my gosh!" All of a sudden, now I see. I see why people come to a place like this together, you know, and I, I see why, why we sing and why we pray and why, and why that guy stands up and reads from the Bible, and I, I see why people are kneeling down, and I see, I see why these things are happening. Because what happens when somebody gets born again, you get a new heart, but you get, you get new eyes. And all of life now becomes a testimony to the fact that God is real, and He is alive. And they were, they were seeing that. They had, they had new affections for Christ. As we read the, about this congregation in Acts 2, we see that they had a, they had a connection with heaven. They were a, a worshiping church. God had shown himself to them and they were responding to him. Verse 42 again tells us that they devoted themselves to prayer. They were a praying church. God had graciously shown them through the gospel that they were a a desperate, needy, weak people. And that didn't lead them to despair, but rather it led them to devotion. Devotion in in prayer. They were under no illusion that they could be self-sufficient. They knew that just as they needed air to breathe, that they needed prayer to abide in, in Christ. They needed His peace in the midst of the persecution that they were about to face. They needed his power as as they were going to go out and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And above all, they needed his presence as he had promised to give it to them. And this church, it was experiencing God's presence. He was among them. They'd been saved and they were seeing other people being saved. And it was, I mean, it was was blowing their minds. Look, Look at verse 43. It says, everyone was filled with awe. They were amazed at what God was doing. And also in verse 43, we see that that the apostles were working signs and miracles, very similar to the way that Jesus had had done uh, signs and and miracles during his ministry. We have several examples of that all the way through the the book of Acts, but if you want to keep on reading in Acts, Acts chapter 3, there's uh, the the first one that we see where a, a crippled beggar is healed by Peter and John. Now, this is, we'll push pause for a second. So this is probably a, a, good, a good time for me to, to point out that while we have very many similarities with the church that we see here in Acts 2, there's also some differences. Because we don't live in the first century and we don't live in Jerusalem. So there's all, automatically some, some differences. Um, but, but in this case, we see that it was a normal thing for the apostles to work miracles as, as a proof of the message that, that they were saying that it was true. Now, today, we don't have apostles in this same sense who are uh, working miracles as, as the gospel is preached. Um, now, can God still work miracles? Yes, he can, most certainly. Does God still work miracles? Yes, most certainly he does. But not in the same way that we see it happening here in this passage. Can we still be in awe of God working in our midst? Yeah, most certainly. And that should, be our, that should be our prayer for this church. Pray that this church will know the blessing of God. Pray, pray that, that God will show up here in, in such a way that, that it, we will just we'll be in awe of the way that he uses this little church on this hilltop out here. That he uses, he uses for his glory. Pray that he will, he will make this place a place where our children are, are born again and maybe become missionaries to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Pray that he will, he will heal broken marriages. Pray that, that God will, will free people from, from addictions. Pray, pray that God will, will deliver people from, from homosexuality. Pray that, that God will liberate people from, from self-righteousness. Whatever sin people find themselves in, let us pray that, that the, this church would be in awe of the way that God just shows up and rocks everybody's world. To where you can only point and say the only way this happened is that God did it. God showed up. 
Let that be the kind of prayer that you pray for this place. The church in Acts 2, they witnessed God's working and it put them in awe. And in verse 46 and 47, they had glad and sincere hearts praising God. They were made glad and it resulted in them giving praise to the Lord. For so long they had been ensnared in the the lies of the world, but now they they were set free from sin's passing pleasures. And they knew that there was no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. And they sang songs and they lifted their voices in praise to Him. May this church be a worshiping church. And not just on Sundays, but may our lives be living sacrifices. Just as it speaks of in the the book of Romans. May our lips constantly give the sacrifice of praise. May this church be a worshiping church when it gathers and when it scatters. Wherever it may go. Let this church be a, a worshiping church. So we ought learn of God and respond to Him with worship. But love for God always is connected with love for people. Which brings us to our third principle that we're learning here, that that we ought be a a loving church. We ought be a loving church. Look again at verse 42 where we see, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Then verse 44 and 46, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This church was a loving church. And their, their, their love was not some kind of just insincere set of, of Sunday smiles. That's not, what, that's not what this love was about for them. But rather, their love, it ran deep. And this is what we'd expect from a church that was produced by grace. We'd expect that if a, if a church came into existence by, by the love of Christ, that it would share that kind of love with others. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus said should mark those who follow him. Remember what Jesus said in, in John 13 on the night that he was betrayed? He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So these people were loving people, and they they showed their love in all sorts of ways, but blatantly by the fact that that they spent time together. I mean, when, when you read through this, you see that they were in each other's homes. They were in each other's lives. They were around each other's tables. And there's, there's just something that happens when believers spend time together over a meal. And I don't say that just because I love to eat. Um, but that's, that's the reality. God does something when his people come together and they, they feast. There's conversations that, that are shared. There's sins that are confessed. There's prayers that are offered up for each other. It's a place where we, we feast and we, we laugh and we testify of God's goodness in our lives. Make that a habit of, of what you do when you share meals together. Ask one another how you came to know the Lord. Tell me that story. Let me hear. These people, they did life together. And it didn't seem to matter whether they were introverts or extroverts. It didn't seem to matter, you know, on the, when they took a personality test, whether they showed up to be a, a lion or a Labrador or a platypus. Or it, didn't, it didn't seem to matter what those things said about them. What, what seemed to matter was the fact that they knew that Christ had called them to love one another. And when we love one another, it requires, it requires something of us. It requires time. And it requires a willingness to open ourselves up to one another. And, and listen, that can be scary. And I, and I know this, but, but what we've got to trust is that the Lord gives grace for us to live out the commands that he's given to us. To be a people who are in one another's lives. 
sharing things that we're not proud of with one another and praying for one another. God blesses that in his people. So are you showing this kind of love to to one another? Are you spending time together? Do you extend invitations to one another's homes? And I know for some of you who have been at this church for a long time, and you've seen periods when these seats were full and periods when these seats were empty, I'm, I'm sure it can be tiring to think about opening up your life again and making new friends with new people who you don't know if they're going to be here tomorrow. I, I can only imagine how tiring that may be, but, but none of us know if we'll be here tomorrow. And I just want to encourage you in faith, let's, let's ask God to use us as living sacrifices, laying down our lives that we might be drawing close to one another. This 40, in verse 42, this fellowship that they're speaking about, it's not just about Christians hanging out and playing bridge together or watching football. And those, those things are fine, but, but fellowship, fellowship, true Christian fellowship is about a unity that believers have together because of their union with Christ. We have something in common together that the rest of the world doesn't know about. So when you spend time with each other, speak about Christ. Speak about who He is and what He's been doing in in your life. Make having spiritual conversations with one another the normal thing that we do. And at first, that's going to be kind of awkward. You're going to be like, "Uh, so do you like Jesus? I like Jesus. Okay, the Redskins, what do you think is going to happen? Like, It's going to be a little awkward at first, probably. But, But keep trying. And get together with some of the elders and ask them to help you. Okay, I want to talk to people about, like, things that are eternal and things that matter. How do I do that? I'll help you think through that. But be a people who who spend time together, intentional time together. It's also important to notice as we look at these, these guys that they didn't just share time together, but they also shared everything that they had with each other. Look again in verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and good. And goods they gave to one another as each had need. These people loved each other, and by sharing what they had, they demonstrated that love for each other. So when when you read this, don't just think about like this is some kind of you know hippie commune where they're kind of going from hut to hut and just taking each other's stuff. Because those kinds of things are often centered around just just the community and just just the good of, of just loving each other for the sake of loving each other. The church is very different. The church is a a bunch of people who realize that everything that we have is from the Lord and exists for the Lord. So the reason that we're willing to part with it for one another's good is the fact that we know that it's not ours in the first place. And that if we're truly a body and we're truly a family, that one of the the best ways that we can love one another practically is is realizing that when one part of the body is suffering, so is another part. And this is, this, this is kind of the mark of what it means to be a Christian. Is that we, that we love one another in, in, in practical ways when, when we need it. This is, like if you think about Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, listen to this. Paul says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. But he must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those who are in need. So the picture is this. If you're a thief, quit your thieving. Come to Jesus. We get saved. Then get a job. Okay? But then you get a job not just so that you can have a bunch of stuff for you, but rather now you get a job so that you can give to other people. So we go from using others and stealing to now serving others and sharing. Like When you come to Christ, everything changes about the way that we view other people and stuff. Everything changes. Same kind of idea from the the passage that we we heard read a moment ago in 1 John 3. I'll just read a section again. This is how we, we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how 
can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. So Christians are to be a people who love each other by sacrificing what they have so that other Christians can be taken care of. And that's a wonderful picture of the gospel. That we, we were destitute and homeless as it were, far from Christ in our sin. We were dead and Christ came and gave everything, gave himself for us who were poor. And then, being born again and grafted in with him, now we are made rich and we share in him and all that is his. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. That's what's pictured every single time that we sacrifice in order to to help others. So would you say this, this characterizes you? When someone's sick, do you... Do you sacrifice time and gas to go see them? And do you sacrifice some of your own groceries in order to maybe make them a meal? When someone loses a job, are you willing to to maybe forego some things that you'd like to be able to help them with their bills? Or or maybe if you have a spare room, if they're going to lose their place to live, that you would allow them to live in your home? Are you willing to give to others? And not just out of your, your excess, but are you willing to make cuts in your comfort? And are you willing to help others who are lacking? That's the kind of love that that ought mark us as a people of God. There's a lady named Pearl who's been a member of our our church in Washington since 1978. Um, And not only has she been a a faithful member there for a long time, but she also served as the church secretaries in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So four decades she served uh, the church as a secretary. Well, in, in 2002, Pearl became, she became ill, wasn't able to attend services anymore, and uh, had to go into an a uh, assisted uh, living facility. And, and recently our, our church found out that, that she, had, she had run out of, of money. So one of the elders got up and told the congregation about this need for Pearl, a lady who I'd say probably 80 or 90% of the church had never met before and hadn't been in that church in 10 years, though she was still a member. And the church, to my amazement, gathered together some $60,000 to give to her. They, They forsook stuff that they wanted, possessions and their own money to be able to help this sister in Christ. Because that's what Christians do. We love one another. We are to be a a loving church. So, we're to be a, a learning church and an evangelizing church and a loving church. But that that love ought not just stay on the inside but it ought pour out outside the doors. And fourthly, we ought be an evangelizing church. An evangelizing church. Look again at 247. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. With with all that was gloriously happening on the inside of this church community, you might think that they were, they were tempted to forget about those who were on the outside. You might think that because so much time and effort and sacrifice were being poured into each other, that they would, they would forget those who weren't a part of their church community. But that, that could not be further from the truth. They loved each other and shared grace with each other, but their love and their grace was not just directed inward, but it was also directed outward. They were a holy, loving people who became like salt on the tongue of their neighbors and who became like light before the eyes of their enemies. And that resulted, as verse 47, in the church enjoying the favor of all the people. Their love is reaching upwards toward, toward the heavens where God is in praise, but it's also reaching outwards to their, their neighbors in gospel proclamation. This church wasn't isolated in some, some kind of ivory tower or you know, just secluded as some kind of exclusive uh, spiritual country club. Their lives were transformed, 
but so were their lips. They lived the gospel, but they also preached the gospel. They were learning and loving and worshiping church, but all of that fueled their mission that Christ had given them of making disciples. Their eyes all of a sudden had been opened to to no longer see people according to the flesh, but to realize that there is a heaven and there's a hell, and all people are going to one of two places, and where they go depends on what, what they do with Christ. And their minds had been cleared to realize that life is a vapor, and that any moment Christ could return. And give them an urgency. And their, their hearts have been warmed to where now they have the compassion of Christ. And they saw people as Christ did. With sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. So they went out. And they went out in the power of, of the Holy Spirit to tell others about Jesus. They went to their, their friends and their family members and neighbors and co-workers. And those who had betrayed them. And those, those who they had betrayed. And when they went, they spoke of Jesus. They told, just like we must tell, the good news that that God is real and that, that Jesus did come because we have rebelled against our Maker and that Christ did die and that He did rise from the dead and that there is mercy and forgiveness for everybody who will turn to Him and confess Him as Lord and Savior. We must be an evangelizing church. And what happened as they went? Look at verse 47 again. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Two things I want us to notice here. First, notice how often people are being added to their number. What does it say? It says daily. Evangelism wasn't just happening as a once a week Sunday morning event. And it wasn't just some monthly revivalistic campaign. But rather, evangelism and discipleship were a part of their everyday life. That's what they did. They told others about Jesus day by day it was happening. When they were going to the market, and when they were going to the fields, and when they were going to the synagogue, and when they were speaking to friends and family, evangelism was no mere event for them, but rather it was was a lifestyle. They were a people who made Christ's name known. So ought we be. Let's tell people about this Jesus who has saved us. Would that be said of us? If we huddled up right now and, and turned towards one another and said, okay, time to be honest, um, how are you doing with, with being an evangelistic uh, disciple of Christ? Are you telling other people about Jesus? How would, those, how would those conversations go? Like, seriously, pause and think, when was the last time that you actually attempted to sit down and share the gospel with another person who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time that that happened? And I, I hear me. I'm not saying that to throw like the guilt bomb on you. That's not what I'm saying. But because this is important and an eternity rests in the balance for those who are around us, I think we need to be honest and weigh that question. How are we doing with being an evangelistic people? Are we being spurred on by the very grace that has been given to us? May that be what Delray Baptist Church is about. May it be a place where daily people are being added to the number. As I've said every time that I've been here, maybe, may, may this be a place where these seats fill up and not just with transfers and not just with people who come from other churches. And those are fine and praise God and welcome, but by people who right now are on their way to hell, who by God's grace and the power of His Spirit through you will hear of the, the gospel. And we'll hear of Christ and be born again. May we, may we have a, a great big water bill. Because we have to keep filling up the baptismal from all the people that keep getting saved around here. May that be what this church is known for. The second thing I want you to, to notice here is, is notice how these people are being added to the church. Verse 47. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How are they being added? 
The Lord. The Lord did it. The Lord is doing it. God is saving sinners. The Lord is opening hearts. Just as in verse 39, where we saw that those who respond to our evangelism are those who the Lord our God calls to himself. That means that that as we go out and we share the gospel, our confidence is not in whether we've got everything down pat and we've got cool little you know, illustrations and fun stories or how suave we are. Our hope is in Christ. When you go out and you share the gospel, your hope is that God shows up. And we, what we realize is that evangelism is a sovereign act of God that we participate in. God is the great evangelist. He's the one who comes and rescues sinners from death. And we, we are merely servants. Servants who who share the word. Just like that that parable in, in Mark 4 where it says that the kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters ground on the sea, or seed on the ground, night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, the head, and the full kernel in the head. Our, our job is to be like that farmer who night and day are just chucking seed, just telling people about Jesus, whatever opportunities that we get, prayerfully, humbly, but courageously, telling people about Christ, and then just sitting back and be like, I don't know how it happened, but you got saved. There he is, right there it happened. We trust that that happened. It's the same thing that happened to you. Seed fell upon your heart, and God made it grow. That's our hope. So, Delray Baptist Church, as we look at this early church, may we learn what it means to be a church that is produced by the gospel and that lives out the gospel. May this church be a learning church. May this church be a worshiping church. May this church be a loving church. And may this church be an evangelizing church. God, give grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirits. And we pray, Father, that just as now seed has been thrown, we we pray that if there's anybody in this room this morning who does not know you, that God, you you would come upon them. And in your mercy, that you would open their their hearts to believe and their eyes to see that Christ is who he says he is. Father, save sinners in our midst. And Father, I I pray that that you would would cause this word to ring in our ears when when this church thinks about what what they're supposed to be about. That God, that you you would remind them of truths from your word and that this church that it would be a light among the nations and that it would be in awe of the way that you would use a group like this for your glory. So, Father, we pray all this in the name of Christ.